0: Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to the interview series, the business of business. I'm your host, Dustin Dubey, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. Hey friends, welcome back to finance fundamentals the interview series the business of business where I interview unique industry experts and business owners to motivate educate and help you to chase your craft corporate finance is changing and is continuing to change. Today's guest is Connor Sweeney and his perspective on corporate finance is unique and his career path is probably different than those that you've heard of. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to finance fundamentals. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me again on Finance Fundamentals. This is a treat for me. I actually have my college roommate here with me this evening, Connor Sweeney, out in California. And it's always fun to bring a a Hassan alum on the show. You're actually the first. Go Eagles. It's always nice to have somebody back from the state of Maine as well, though we've both flown that nest. Connor, thanks for joining me this evening.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Dustin. I, I want to just quickly start off by commending you for what you're doing here. It really wasn't until the later years of my you know, university career, early parts of my professional career that I really started to understand the impact that financial literacy can have on my future my family's future you know if you've said many times on your show already there is a you know a massive gap especially in the United States as it relates to financial literacy and that gap as you've also said really stems from the lack of access we experience in an early age so I'm really excited to be here with you today and again really psyched about what you're doing here and I think it's going to help a lot of people
0: yeah I appreciate that thanks a lot I think that this is just the, the start of a platform I'm the voice behind the mic. People don't want to hear me 24-7. So it's nice to bring folks like you on. It's also nice to bring on a couple of younger faces that have different perspectives. And uh, we grew up in a digital age. So that's always fun to bring on people with a perspective working in the tech world. And so that's where Connor is. And the interesting thing about Connor working in the tech world, it's in a finance operations role. And and most of your roles have been in that world. So procurement, finance and operations, executive operations. Most recently, you did a a stint at HP and global real estate and went to Walmart e-commerce. And and now you've ended up at Box. So pretty impressive resume for somebody still in their late 20s. And I, I commend you on that. Let's talk a little bit about your backstory because I know from going to school with you that finance was not what you probably intended to do and where you thought you would end up all these years later.
1: For sure. Yeah. Finance uh, and anything to do with finance and accounting was my least favorite thing to deal with in a university setting. Uh, Thankfully, I had a, a good friend who had an accounting background. So, a little bit about me like a few guests that you've had on your show already, I'm a New England native. I grew up in Kennebunk, Maine, which is a small coastal town in southern Maine. I also spent a lot of time growing up in the North Shore of Massachusetts, which is where my father and grandparents lived for much of my childhood. And small business ownership was big in my family. My grandfather and father owned and operated an Irish pub or uh, I started washing dishes uh, on the weekends at 12 years old fairly cliche uh, story for those that uh, are also from New England my mother had a few career paths she was you know no stranger to hospitality uh, she sold real estate for a while all before finding her real passion for for antiques and went on to own and run an antique shop in southern maine so all in all I, I- you know, come from a family of hustlers. There is so much hustle to the world of small business ownership, and certainly, as you know, Dustin, you grew up around this. And I think being around this for so much of my life, I believe, is what inspired a certain work ethic that that uh, I take very seriously today. I remained in New England, uh, as you noted, for my university years. Went to Hudson University, Go Eagles. I believe it or not, started my university career as a music production, audio engineering student. I'm a musician by hobby and spent much of my childhood playing in bands with friends. And like many thought that this made sense for me professionally as a teenager, I very quickly recognized the financial risk in this decision and also quickly recognized that a hobby can very quickly become unenjoyable when you start to put professional pressure on it, which is when I popped over to uh, the business school. And I went on to get a a degree in, in business administration and marketing and during the later years of my college career, I decided I wanted to move to California and work in tech. And while this may seem like a fairly common path, this wasn't exactly the norm for college students in Northern New England at the time. And so the uh, extra push and support from, from certain professors and mentors really helped uh, to make this a reality. And, and seven plus years later, I'm still in California and, and have been in the tech industry for yeah, a majority of my
0: career. Yeah, a special shout out to Professor Watson. I know he's been listening to a couple of these and having some folks like him in your corner was definitely a a huge asset. I'd love to talk a little bit about you left Maine, you go to California, Silicon Valley, highly competitive environment. You end up in the world of tech. You know, we do have some tech in the East Coast, primarily in the Boston area, maybe a little bit in Raleigh. We have pockets of it, but nothing like what is out West. So how was that transition getting into corporate America and also the tech world, which is much different than the corporate America that I went into after leaving school?
1: Yeah, so, you know, my career has definitely been a non-linear one at times. So I I started my career out of college at HP Hewlett Packard. I joined their global corporate services organization and specifically joined, they had a, a professional rotational experience program, as they called it you know, put me through four rotations across global procurement, global real estate. They had a kind of an internal systems and tools and operations team. And I spent two years in this program as a a business operations analyst. And, you know, I'll start by saying I'm a huge proponent for programs like this. It's it's really a phenomenal opportunity to bridge that gap between campus and corporate with some, what I like to call experimental applicability. You, You quickly learn what you like and don't like. And what was unique about my time at HP and the start of my career was I joined just as the company was going through what is considered to be one of the biggest corporate transformations in tech history, maybe even the biggest, the 80 plus year old $100 billion legacy technology behemoth that I had joined was splitting into two separate publicly traded companies, what are known today as HP Inc or HP Incorporated, which is the kind of personal printing consumer products company many are familiar with. And then Hewlett Packard Enterprise, which is an enterprise tech IT infrastructure focused company. The split was announced six months into me joining the company. So you can imagine, Imagine what's going through my head at this point. For what it's worth, I ended up on the Hewlett Packard Enterprise side, which was essentially a 50,000 person global startup. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, The amount of change and transformation that was happening at the company at that time gave many of us who were fairly earlier in our careers, really incredible in development opportunities. Over the course of close to five years, which of course is the first five years of my career, found myself in roles I would have never imagined myself in at such a... Uh, a young age. I had the opportunity to. At times I was leading a change management PMO for a massive global tools and systems organization. At one point, was even tapped to relocate to headquarters, which is in Silicon Valley. Which is kind of how I found myself in Silicon Valley to lead a portion of the company's West Coast global real estate operations team, which was a very unique four-way into management and and kind of the bigger leagues of things. You know, I was given a, an eighty million dollar a year budget, OpEx had oversight over a massive team, was plopped into a larger Team that was responsible for relocating then Hewlett-Packard Enterprise's Silicon Valley Legacy Headquarters. It was an insane ride. And, and all of this happening kind of before the ages of you know 26, right? And so fast forward a bit, I left Hewlett-Packard Enterprise eventually to head over to Walmart. I joined their e-commerce arm, as you noted earlier, where I oversaw executive communications for their global chief people officer, their global HR organization and their biz dev organizations. The e-commerce arm of Walmart was going through a lot of M&A activity at that time. So it was just a really kind of fascinating time to be there. And after a a fairly brief year and a half stint at Walmart, I ended up here at Box where I serve today as the principal and chief of staff to their global finance and and operations organization, as well as their office of the co-founder and CFO, Dylan Smith. I've been with Box now for a little over a year and a half. And I I oftentimes walk people through this and they say, have you been working for 40 years or seven years? Now, I I mentioned all of this to truly model how nonlinear I should say the past few years have been. But there was an absolute method to the madness for what it's worth for me. You know, my biggest passions in the world of business are business operations. So how organizations can drive uh, as much efficiency and effectiveness in the way that they operate to leadership. You know, what does effective leadership look like on an org by org, company by company basis? What makes people tick? And three, communication. So all of those roles I've had, in my continued journey have allowed me to dig into a subset or all of those key focus areas at any given time.
0: Yeah. I think that it's, it's funny, you know, you, you leave school And there's this whole wide array of of options for us. And we don't often know about all of these options. We know about the traditional finance paths. You know, we have friends that go into banking and go into finance, whether that be as a financial advisor or maybe as a you know a financial analyst at a company. A lot of people go into accounting roles. This is a much different take on getting into the world of finance and Obviously, this is probably, like you say, not the most linear path. So let's talk a little bit about getting rid of that mindset for a minute that a lot of us probably have as thinking finance equals, you know, spreadsheet jockey, number cruncher. That that may not be the case anymore. And I I know that, you know, in my experience, a lot of, of the folks that I work with have amazing financial brains and a lot of them have incredible management styles and a lot of them are involved in very heavy operations as well.
1: For sure. Yeah. So I mentioned this in the beginning of the interview. Finance was a topic or area of business that I dreaded as a student in business school, but really came to enjoy later on as my career ramped. You know, what I feel has been most impactful for me in that evolution is recognizing to your point how broad finance is in the bigger picture. Finance sometimes gets a bad rep in the sense that you know, many associate someone's career in finance as one of very few things, as you just mentioned, right? Oftentimes the assumption is you work in accounting, investment banking, kind of meta-level banking, but to, to your point, the world of finance is so much more broad and diverse than, than that. And yes, there are lots of professionals who work in accounting and investment banking, which are incredibly important you know, angles or aspects of finance. But there are also a ton of finance professionals that work in, say, FP&A or SP&A. So uh, you know, financial planning and analysis, strategic planning and analysis, which is essentially a set of activities in a larger organization that really help to support an organization's financial health, right? That's strategic planning and budgeting, integrated financial planning, management and performance reporting, forecasting and modeling. This to me is one of the most interesting areas for finance professionals to, to get into right now because it's it's really, really important as organizations continue to grow and become more complex. It's also just a phenomenal opportunity to own the end-to-end financial management process for a certain team or leader, et cetera. And so fp a is a really big function from a finance perspective in, in the world of, of technology. And I know it is across a lot of other industries as well. You know, how about the world of corporate development and, and strategy? You know, this. Oftentimes, you know, is the function of a company that's responsible for high level strategic decision making that contributes to the growth or sometimes restructuring of a company. This could be anything from executing mergers and acquisitions to establishing and maintaining key strategic partnerships. Another interesting area of finances, and again, kind of more my area is business intelligence and business operations. So uh, oftentimes these functions either sit within finance or are closely aligned to finance, depending on the organizational structure. I mean, business intelligence teams or or kind of data analytics teams, if you will, are really cool in that they partner with orgs across a company to provide deep-rooted business intelligence through extensive modeling. This modeling oftentimes leads to very kind of highly strategic decisions that the company is getting ready to make. This could be anything from insight into product line performance, customer insights and analytics, or even kind of internally people and employee trends and analytics analytics. So really, really interesting, interesting space. And then lastly, on the business operations front, there certainly can sometimes be a, a business intelligence component to the role. Oftentimes business operations teams serve as internal consultants that, you know, will helicopter into any variety of challenges or programs that are oftentimes connected to driving the overall efficiency and effectiveness of key processes, tools, et cetera, in an organization really kind of there to keep the engines running. Business operations functions are highly sought after and, and a lot of times earlier stage companies as they really help kind of structure the operational cadence and and processes of the business that really allows the business to continue to grow. You know, in a lot of cases, chiefs of staff oftentimes own the end-to-end team or components of business operations of a certain organization, but it really all depends on the the size of the organization. So, you know, net, net, and I'm just really kind of skimming the surface there because we haven't even touched on things like controllership functionalities, which yes, accounting plays a big role there, but everything from collections Rebops to AP, etc. The the net net is that uh, the, the world of finance is a pretty broad one, and uh, hopefully, at some point here, curriculum wise, uh, universities will get caught up on on really helping to kind of emphasize that.
0: Yeah, I think that's important because when uh, you know I went to school, I studied finance and accounting, and I, I felt like the exit ops were kind of cut and dry. You went into banking, you went into accounting, you went into typical traditional finance roles. There weren't a lot of discussion points around strategy, operations, the world of transactions, which I actually found myself in for a while. And I think that that right there is a whole other slew of knowledge that it, unfortunately we lose out on. So what one thing I'd like to talk about as well is obviously... You were talking about this in a very romantic way, but there is some pressure and some intensity that goes into finance roles. Let's talk about how you balance that and balance the pressure and stress in some of the the roles that you are have been in and the roles that you probably will be in in the future. Because I'm sure there's some prospective students that are listening to this that may think, I want to do those roles. I want to partake in some of this work. I'm just a little nervous about how to handle that stress and pressure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the speed of business today is, is just incredible, isn't it? Right. I mean, how how quickly things move. You know, certainly in the world of technology, but really any any industry, you have you know a fair amount of volatility. But but things just in general, things move fast. Right. And so, you know, a lot of organizations, again, regardless of the industry, especially in much larger organizations, there's always a huge emphasis on collaboration. Partnership and so you know, kind of teamwork makes the dream work is you know one of those mentalities that really makes again kind of finance organizations et cetera really tick and finance organizations in especially larger companies are are oftentimes kind of advisory and partner organizations right so they are working very very closely with people across the entirety of the business to kind of drive advise et cetera you know a certain agenda around any sort of topic connected to the role that they're in or, or whatever they're responsible I think for me over the years in some of the- the various roles I've been in, it's really been a huge priority for me to come into any organization and build an effective partnership framework. Because there's only so much that you can do on your own. And that's especially true when you're new to an organization or even new to an industry. Right. I mean, I, I remember stepping into the, the the wild world of Walmart. And while I was working on the e-commerce side, which is kind of a tech-driven arm of the company, it's still meta-level retail, right? And retail is just a whole different beast than the, the five previous years that I spent in enterprise tech. And then of course, now currently at Box, you know, back in that enterprise technology space. And so, you know, being the new guy often Thank in organizations, companies, et cetera, I, I make it a, a, an absolute priority to kind of go on a bit of a listening tour myself, develop the partnerships, develop the rapport, but most importantly, build that partnership framework, you know, that, that again, just really kind of reinforces how you know, the power of collaboration can make a world of difference as you're driving really high-packed work. So, um, you know, I think it's all about partnership. It's all about collaboration. It's all about dedication and really just taking the time to, to learn the craft.
0: I think that building that network is incredibly important. Let's talk about some of the executives that you've been exposed to. You know, There probably are a lot of people listening that are thinking, geez, I'm 10 years older than Connor and I don't get those opportunities. So you were thrown into some roles where you had some high level exposure pretty early on. That probably was a bit of a, a pain point in the beginning, learning how to work with these execs. You've clearly adapted and have Exceeded in that world, but let's talk about how how those execs have helped to form and shape the the path that you've taken.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. As I alluded to earlier, leadership is one of those things at a meta level that I'm really interested in, regardless of how good or bad I feel a leader or a boss has been. I always make it a point to to take something away from that experience and, and put it in my own toolkit as, you know, certainly the aspirations that I have are, are going to come from my ability to leverage that toolkit later. You know, starting with the good, I'll certainly start by by giving a well-deserved nod to, to my current boss. Uh, it's been a you know, phenomenal opportunity to to kind of partner with Box's co-founder and chief financial officer over the last year and a half. And I'll get into a little bit of what I do in my role a, a bit later on. But with that said, and, and where this kind of nod is coming from is they say that empathy first leadership is important, but I'm sure that many will agree that it's something that we really don't see enough of in business. And you know, Dustin, you probably get more exposure to this than anyone as you're working with clients across a variety of different industries at, at any given time. Thankfully, I've seen this and again, kind of empathy first leadership take stride, become a prominent part of what we do, you know, during a, a very kind of critical volatile part of history for a lot of companies. And that goes for for us in tech as well. So watching my leadership model this so well during times where the stakes are so high, when there's a ton of ambiguity and a million one excuses not to prioritize showing empathy has been insanely inspirational. Secondly, uh, you know, I've learned a lot about mindfulness while in this role. And while working with my boss, in fact, I remember in my first couple of months at Box, I had the opportunity to attend a two-day-long mindfulness clinic that really changed my life in a variety of different ways. You know, I saw coworkers and leaders alike come together to really reinforce the importance of mindfulness and balance, which is messaging that just doesn't exist enough across any industry. With that said, I think the pandemic has shed some necessary light on this, and we're seeing more and more companies and leaders prioritizing mindfulness and mental health, which is fantastic. On the challenging side, there's you know, always balance there. I've worked for some leaders who I've really struggled with as well. But what's interesting is how impactful and believe it or not, a very positive way those challenging experiences were for me. I remember years ago, I worked for a senior leader who really made my life quite difficult. This was probably the first role that I had that was, you know the, the stakes were a bit higher. And I watched this person candidly bully their way through very high stakes, volatile situations. They severely lacked any sort of, in my opinion, emotional intelligence. And despite my best efforts, this you know leader would oftentimes put me down, right? There was just no winning. But you know, with all of that said, there were things about this leader that I came to admire later on. One is, despite this person's rank and title, they never hesitated to ask the most basic questions to ensure they understood what was going on. We oftentimes stop ourselves from asking what we feel are questions that are too basic in professional settings, you know, in fear of looking underqualified or or kind of ill-equipped for the job. And I I can't tell you how often I've seen that type of insecurity seriously hinder a person's ability to do their job later on. And so to see someone so senior in their career with so much experience asking those basic tactical questions allowed them to really understand what type of impact that they could drive with with their team. I think secondly, and again, this is kind of all referencing this person that was very, very challenging and, and kind of, in my opinion, emotionally incompetent in in some cases, but kind of that second light bulb moment for me. And what I saw as a positive was this person's commitment to their family was really refreshing. We see this all the time, that constant struggle between professional and family prioritization. And that has become even murkier as now professionals are kind of working and playing all in the same space in this predominantly virtual work environment. And so uh, despite being as hard as they were to work with and work for, you know, the kind of prioritization of their family was something that had a, a really positive impact on their org. For someone like me who was still fairly early on in his career, this was a great thing to see as I envisioned what it would be like to, to work in this type of environment with, with my own family. So I've I've had a variety of you know experiences. And it, whether it be kind of VP or C-suite, I've really seen kind of all sides of the equation as far as you know what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. But again, that's why for me, I have such an interest in in leadership because. It's, uh, it really is fascinating to see how how kind of leadership principles can make or break the, the productivity of an organization.
0: Yeah, I think that especially, you know, in, in the world of professional services, I've worked with a variety of different, uh, you know, anywhere from middle management to C-suite. And I've worked with the RE Golds of Entourage that are <laughs> storming and, and creating all kinds of controversy. And then I've worked with others that are incredibly mindful. And I love that you brought up mental health awareness, because though this episode won't come out until a little later, May is mental health awareness month in both the US and the UK. So very important that companies are are bringing that to the fold. And I'm, I'm really happy that that's happening, especially this year. So let's chat a little bit about your current role at Box. And then we'll take a step and talk about what the the exit roles are for typical chief of staffs, and and where they typically find themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, just for high level context, so I, I work for a SaaS company called Box. Box is an industry leading cloud content management platform. We help to secure our customers' content, power collaboration, kind of all in one amazing platform. Around 67% of the Fortune 500 leverage box today we're headquartered in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have around 2,000 employees worldwide, and we've been public since 2015, I believe. I'm currently principal and chief of staff to the global finance organization. So in general, a chief of staff often provides a buffer of sorts between a chief executive and that executive's leadership team. And a chief of staff oftentimes serves as the right hand to a chief executive to drive as much efficiency and effectiveness as possible around really how the org and the company operates. They oftentimes, uh, chief of staff oftentimes work behind the scenes to help drive big strategic initiatives, solve problems. I spend a lot of time dealing with potential challenges before they are brought to the chief executive. You know, at an industry level, especially over the last few years, as the role has gained a lot of momentum, especially in, in Silicon Valley, chiefs of staff are often dubbed as like the chief dot connector uh, of an organization. And you know, funny enough, people oftentimes kind of jokingly ask, if my role is similar to that of the chief of staff of the White House or the president's chief of staff, and you know, interestingly enough, the framework for the role is almost identical. It's just my president happens to be the you know kind of co-founder and CFO of an 800 million dollar SaaS company. So my boss's organization sits somewhere around 400 people, and in my role, I oversee more specifically and drive business operations, uh, executive communications, and kind of strategic program management slash you know all of the stuff. Special projects that come up for him and, and his leadership team. And, you know, as far as skills to get there, because I mentioned that there is a lot of momentum around this role right now, but also a lot of mystery uh, around this role. There are many paths to this role. And this, I think, connects really nicely into our earlier part of the conversation around all the different types of kind of financial roles that people can take on. You'll meet a lot of chiefs of staff that have extensive management consulting or investment banking backgrounds. These are skill sets that at one point, Point, we're almost kind of exclusively connected to the role of, of chief of staff. But there's been a lot of evolution over the last just kind of few years and in, in really kind of what the ideal profile of a chief of staff looks like. You know, you'll meet chiefs of staff with extensive political backgrounds who bring their higher profile public sector backgrounds into the private sector world. You'll meet many chiefs of staff who have extensive finance backgrounds coming from the world of FPA or corporate development strategy. My background is, of course, none of those things, interestingly enough. But having spent a majority of my career in you know, business operations strategy, having done some stints in executive communications, that trifecta is almost identical to the framework that many chiefs of staff follow in their journey. So here I am today.
0: And what typically is the end of a chief of staff's life? So I know that there are generally, it's not a long-term role, right? You typically are in this for a number of years, maybe, but after the fact, what is the objective for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the interesting thing about being in a chief of staff role is it's a blessing and a curse. The world is your oyster, but that can be a really overwhelming thing to kind of work through. You start to think about next steps, but it's interesting that you asked and kind of how it's developed because my career aspirations over the last few years certainly have developed. Uh, Had you asked me this question a few years ago, it surely would have been different than now. For a majority of my career until now, there's kind of two themes that have remained a constant. One is leadership development and just my my interest in leadership. And and secondly, is surprisingly, because we haven't talked a lot about it, but the world of HR. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I I have a a passion for leadership and leadership development. And many of the moves I've made in my career to date have been kind of partially tied to the interest I have in seeing how senior leaders operate in really complex, fast-paced environments. Secondly, whether it be you know leading efforts or teams across the corporate real estate space, or driving you know the exact communication strategy for a Fortune 1 uh, HR function, or driving kind of global location and strategy uh, workforce strategy efforts in my role as chief of staff at Box, uh, in partnership with our HR organization, there's been a ton of adjacency between what I've done. In the world of strategic HR. So I am optimizing for continued growth in this space. and, And eventually, let's call it kind of like the five to 10 year plan, a senior leadership position in this space down the road. Some of the Best HR executives I've worked with have experience working in the business where they've spent portions of their career in other parts of the business like finance or product or marketing. There's a lot of value in being able to bring that perspective to a role in strategic HR. Human capital is a topic best addressed with diverse perspectives. And those diverse perspectives, again, come from the experience of working in other parts of the business over the course of a a long career. I'll also mention that I've developed a, a passion for teaching. I do a a fair amount of, of guest lecturing on a variety of different topics and you know, I've even had the opportunity this semester to partner with a, a wonderful organization called BRAVEN to coach a group of university students at Cal State San Jose, San Jose State, through a, a semester-long leadership accelerator as they prepare for their own campus-to-corporate transitions. I have a lot of passion around this because this was not an easy transition for me. It's not an easy transition for many, and it's been one of the most uh, rewarding experiences I've had and, and something I hope to continue to do. I think kind of optimizing for that you know, senior HR leadership role down the road and then hopefully being able to, to, to take on more, more teaching gigs as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I, I've had multiple people on the show and I don't think one of them has told me that their career path went exactly how they anticipated it to go. Let's speak to to prospective students or let's let's even say young professionals that maybe want to make a career switch. What are some key skills or strategies that they should use to end up in a role such as yourself, or maybe just to have more diverse and unique experiences in the world of finance.
1: I think as far as advice to early careers, young students who want to make a career change pivot, you know, I, I talk a lot about this in in various opportunities that I've had to, you know, guest lecture in universities or, or, or just teach in general. And there's a few things that I would say here. I think one is take inventory of your transferable skills. To me, these are important skills that you can take almost anywhere, but especially important to call out, you know, when you're thinking about career change. And for me, you know, when I think about kind of transferable skills, it's things like project management, communications, you know, how can you lean into those transferable skills in another role? And so I think it's really, really important as you're kind of going through the motions of building your career to be very mindful of, you know, what are your call it superpowers and and what are your areas of development? And as you kind of think about your superpowers within those superpowers, what are some transferable skills that would be really useful across a variety of of other roles to to kind of help you emphasize kind of your story for making a career change? Two, while there are pros and cons to working in large organizations, one of the big pros to working in, in larger organizations earlier on in your career is access in a large company you have the luxury of being able to pick people's brains internally that work in different disciplines across all spectrums of, of business and to take that a step further you know I've always been a big proponent of stretch projects. So let's say that you have someone who is looking to make the transition from a career in finance to a career in sales, building connections with go-to-market folks within your organization or company, followed by then raising your hand to help those folks out with a stretch project is often a really effective method to kind of making that formal hop. So I think there's a lot of value in starting your career in large organizations for the sake of access and flexibility. You may have to make these types of pivots internally to kind of be successful doing it externally later. And then three is, sounds so cliche, but network, right? And this may be the most kind of obvious part of this answer, but I can't tell you how many times my network has come in handy related to securing a new gig or, or advice or what have you, and could be getting intros to others. So as you get older and, and your schedule gets more hectic, it becomes harder and harder to maintain contact with your network. But I can't stress enough the importance of taking the time to do it anyways. Find the time, build and maintain. I think the, the maintenance part is oftentimes the, the most challenging for people once they've built their network. And it really can be you know, oftentimes the downfall of this process for a lot of people. So it's one thing to build the network, but it's a whole other thing and, and oftentimes looked at as like a, a whole other full-time job to maintain the network. But I, I'll, I'll emphasize again that that network for me has come in handy and, and actually kind of fun fact was a, a huge part of, of me being able to step into the role that I'm in right now with Box
0: having that network is so powerful and the the business relationships. And there's a reason that corporations spend millions of dollars on golf memberships every year because the, the time built on that course is <laughs> second to none. So we talk a lot about the execs that you've worked with, a lot of the experiences that you've had. Let's talk about risk-taking. Clearly in the nonlinear path that you've had, you had to take some risks. You had to take some leaps, leaps of faith. I think a lot of young people, especially early on in their career, think, I don't want to rock the boat. Clearly, that's not what you did. So what what kind of drove you to do that? What gave you the courage to do that? Clearly, it's it's had some upside for you, but I'm sure there were some uneasy emotions and times throughout
1: sure, I'll, I'll answer this in, in kind of a couple of different ways. I think starting off with the linear versus non-linear career paths. You know, so I've alluded to career linearity a few times during this session, and I think it's really important to reinforce that the journey will and should be different for everybody. Now, I understand that there are a variety of technical disciplines across fields, such as engineering, law, medicine, just to name a few where career linearity is going to be a lot more straightforward and and maybe a, a bit more strict, if you will. But I believe in general, we oftentimes put too much pressure on ourselves to fit into a mold or achieve certain timelines or acquire very specific roles or titles, et cetera, et cetera. So look, career pathing and career development exercises are critical because it gives us guardrails in our journey. But it's important to see these as guardrails. And know that there are opportunities that will come along that may take us off the rails. But what I have found over the years is that those opportunities oftentimes end up being the best thing that's ever happened because it either leads to something bigger and better or ends up becoming an area of interest and development that you never would have seen otherwise, or at a minimum, just provides you with additional skills to add to your toolbox. So, very passionate about that particular topic because you're you're right in that in that nonlinear journey that I've had, there have been, you know, moments of frustration and confusion. You know, do I do this? Do I not do this? And I've really tried to put myself in a position to say, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to go do it. And I'm going to figure out how to do it later and hopefully I'll I'll net out with some benefits to this. And so I I think that's really important to emphasize. You mentioned something about risk-taking. Keep my answer fairly simple on on the importance of of risk-taking, and that is this. Take risks. (laughs) Take lots of risks. Take the assignment that you may think you're not qualified for. Take the out-of-state or out-of-country job transfer. Take the stretch project. You realistically only get early in your career card once, right? And so the decisions that you make during this time really lays the foundation for for what's ahead. In kind of today's business environment, certainly in tech, risk-taking is... Encouraged, and oftentimes is actually a core part of many organizations core values. So some of the best products and companies in the valley in the world come from individuals or companies that have been very intentional with taking risk. And, you know, when I look at my own career, it was relocating to Silicon Valley for a job I felt insanely underqualified for that allowed me to get to where I am now. I was told by more than one mentor during that decision-making process to to stop thinking about it and just say yes, and the rest will fall into place. And so risk-taking should absolutely be a core part of your plan in the early stages of your career, no question about it.
0: Yeah, it's funny too. I, I, you mentioned, look, you're only young once, you can only take these risks once. You know, even with starting this podcast, I think a lot of people rally along young people, and they want to see them succeed and take risks. When somebody that's got 20 years of experience moves to a new role, is it really a risk? No, it's probably not as risky as as somebody that's just fresh out of school. So Highly commend you for the risk that you've taken. So obviously with the pandemic, the Silicon Valley probably was hit harder than most parts of the country. California as a whole was hit pretty hard. A lot of lockdowns and restrictions. A lot of companies were, obviously we, we think of them as tech companies and digitally focused, but not necessarily set up for every single employee to be working remote. Let's talk about how that has impacted the, the Valley and how you see that change going forward?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's no secret that COVID has had a significant impact on most companies across every industry. I mean, interestingly enough, for Silicon Valley, it was a bit of a, a mixed bag, some good, some bad. You certainly saw companies across all industries going through a variety of different budget exercises and Oftentimes, those budget exercises resulted in IT or tech-related budget cuts, which plenty of enterprise tech SaaS companies felt the impact of at one time or another. The organizations that remain stable, which there, there were plenty of them, uh, and in some cases even flourished, were the ones that offered products or services that leaned into the remote working environment that we're all seeing right now, which is, for what it's worth, something I don't think is going away anytime soon. Many organizations were forced to undergo some sense of digital transformation a whole lot sooner than they probably expected to, right? And that is mainly connected to your point, Dustin, around, yes, just because you are a tech company does not necessarily mean mean that you are in a position to just, you know, in the snap of a finger, send your entire workforce home to work remote indefinitely. So business continuity planning has never been a hotter topic (laughs) than it has been in the last year and a half for a lot of companies. So look, I think in general, it impacted certain elements of tech in a positive way and others in a less than ideal way. But what's been most interesting is watching the way that companies have pivoted their strategies to align with what's going on externally. And for those that have focused very heavily on that, many have, have reaped the benefits of it and have been quite successful. So in general, we will be reading case studies on this stuff for decades, not just about the tech industry, but certainly probably even more so for other industries such as travel and retail and what have you.
0: Yeah, obviously, we've read a lot about employees that live in San Francisco. It's a very expensive place to live. Some of them have chose to, to leave the the Valley for the foreseeable future, at least, until they're required to come back. And I do not envy the corporate decision making that needs to happen at heavy leadership levels and something that is going to be talked about in a lot of boardrooms for many hours to come. So where do you see tech going? So obviously it's a there's been a lot of MA activity, a lot of venture capitalists coming into the fold. There's been some pretty heavy outside investments, not even just US investments, but internationally. Where do you see some of the biggest changes? coming in the valley. And I know we talk about digital transformation and maybe focusing on some some factors of businesses that they didn't think about before. Uh, what's kind of the, your, your top three, if you would?
1: Yeah, this is, this is a great question. I really nerd out over this stuff. So <laughs> in general, I think there are some key themes and consumer trends that developed during the height of the pandemic that I just don't see going away anytime soon. And kind of the first and most obvious is the work from anywhere trends uh, that we're seeing in in corporate America right now. You know, naturally, there were a lot of business leaders that were concerned about what sending everyone home to work would look like. There were concerns about how it would impact productivity, as well as concerns around how it would impact kind of team and company culture. Now, I completely understand that this is a fairly subjective topic, but across the board, we very quickly saw trends for all industries where where productivity actually increased in many cases and where elements of corporate culture actually strengthened in this virtual environment. So I'll start with those points to say that I believe technology or or products in general that lend itself to enabling workplace flexibility will continue to do well, right? So certain SaaS platforms, communication platforms, etc. Secondly, we all saw and probably contributed to, I know I did, the surge in e-commerce. The Amazons, Walmarts, Instacarts, et cetera, I'm confident will continue to do well. They were doing well before the pandemic. They saw a surge of business during the pandemic. And there's been a lot of changes in consumer behavior as far as you know what shopping looks like for, for families. So I, I also think we'll see a lot of continued innovation in this space, both with the existing big players, as well as new disruptors. So I'm really eager to to watch what happens in this space in the months and years ahead. You know, a good example of this, there's a company that I'm really interested in watching called Olive. So a former Walmart and Jet.com executive named Nate Faust is in the process of launching an e-commerce platform right now focused on sustainability. So shoppers will essentially have the ability to shop from a variety of different fashion and accessory brands, right? All in the the easy experience of one app. Their orders would then be consolidated into one weekly delivery sent in a soft, soft, zippered box that is reusable and made almost exclusively from recycled materials. And the idea is to make a few deliveries as possible, which then, you know, in theory kind of reduces the amount of carbon emissions that are associated with all the deliveries that are taking place today. I I find this really interesting. There's an applicability perspective here. You know, my wife and I just moved into a new house a few months ago and the amount of cardboard that built up over the course of a month of us, you know, getting new furniture and new things for the house and and just miscellaneous items in general was insane, right? I mean, our garage was stacked with cardboard, patio was stacked, took weeks to kind of catch up and and getting rid of it. And so I think it's kind of disruptors and elements of innovation like this, they're going to be really interesting to watch in the e-commerce space. And, And I'd say lastly, Dustin, I see a lot of opportunity and innovation happening in the real estate slash lending slash prop tech, property tech space. Again, I have a fairly Biased point of view uh, on this as my wife and I just went through a, a very hellish home buying experience, but I know we're not alone. I have yet to meet someone in my network that says, oh man, the home buying or refi experience I just went through <laughs> was amazing, right? Because it's not. I mean, it absolutely is, is the worst. And so companies like Zillow, Compass, Better.com, Anthem IQ, Zeebo, Breezeway, just to name a few, are really starting to disrupt a very complex and, and historically very regulated industry that has been jamming at the same pace for a very long time. That mixed with the surge in home buying that we've seen during the pandemic and the existing existing demand and inventory challenges that we're seeing right now, this is going to be a really exciting space to watch in the years ahead. And there's a lot of investment and, and VC money that's that's going into again these kind of real estate tech, prop tech, call it lending tech companies, which is yeah, just just really
0: fascinating. I really like that you brought up Olive because that's that's a pretty cool concept. And we're all suckers for convenience. But sustainability and making decisions in our daily lives will be better for everyone. So I think we'll see more companies like that going forward so uh, this is a segment of the show I call it bullish or bearish and so I'm gonna throw some uh, some industry topics or maybe company ideas at you and you're just gonna tell me you know uh, rapid fire bullish or bearish and why we'll just have a quick conversation about it all right so this is one that I'm very bullish on and i I, I have a feeling I know your answer but let's talk about corporate internships in college
1: corporate internships in college yes major bullish a- and part of my curriculum criteria when I was going through the university setting was that I, I was required to do an internship. And I know it was very similar for, for you, Dustin. And I attribute a lot of the development I've seen over the last seven years to taking that trek out to California to do an internship with HP, 21 years of age, connected to the requirement that my university had for, for me to do an internship. And so I, I think it's, it's absolutely critical. I think it's something that especially within the realm business should be mandatory. There's that applicability piece that is obviously missing as you're going through the cycles in the classroom. And 100% changed my perspective on what it was that I thought I wanted to do pre-internship. And then coming out of that internship, I had a a very different point of view on the next steps in my career. So yeah, very bullish.
0: Yeah. And for those that don't know, Hudson University, though, a small school, 100% of business students there do internships. So very important part of the curriculum. And I think that it really gives you a lot of perspective because you're taking 18, 19, 20 year olds and expecting them to enter the workforce in a couple of years. And this is just another avenue to get them some experience. And I also think that from a perspective of somebody that's had interns working underneath me, What a learning experience for me too. You know, you're taking somebody that has very little to no work experience and putting them into an environment that we sometimes have to be sympathetic and put ourselves in their shoes. So good all around. Let's talk about airlines. Do you see the airline industry picking up big time this year. I know that it definitely got a bit of a tear. However, is it going to hit those 2019 numbers, bullish or bearish on, let's go with the last six months of 2021?
1: I'm actually pretty bullish on this because I've actually, you know, someone who loves investing as a hobby. I was actually just having this conversation with my father-in-law a couple of days ago uh, around just the travel industry in general. And I will say that I'm specifically bullish on airlines that have a focus on domestic travel. You know, I think that we have a ways to go on international travel travel. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of volatility from a COVID perspective in a lot of parts of the world right now. And so I I anticipate there's going to be a a bit more ramp time to to get us to a point where we are as bullish as we used to be with with traveling internationally. But I think for sure, very bullish on domestic travel, and just the industry in general, whether that be airlines, hotels, kind of Airbnbs, VRBOs, etc. And this is actually an area that I'm, I'm really interested in right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, we've come a long way since that April May timeframe of last year when we were worried that some of the airlines may not make it. So definitely seen some volatility there throughout the year, but we're we're definitely coming out of it. All right, so this is kind of a fun one. TikTok, it's a new avenue, it's a new social tool. There are some goods to it. There's probably a lot of bad to it as well. But regardless of personal opinions bullish or bearish on it as a platform and maybe a networking tool?
1: Yeah. If you had asked me six months ago, I would have said bearish. Ask me now, I say very much bullish. And and there's a couple of different angles there. One, they went through some, some pretty significant volatility at one point from a previous administration perspective around security and content and was certainly concerned for their future as a result of all of the back and forth that they were dealing with at the time, but they have come through it really nicely. And I think that it's a really incredible platform, similar to kind of Instagrams or even Facebooks. It's an incredibly useful kind of revenue generating tool for a lot of people. And so I I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. I also think that the way that they've marketed themselves and and just some of the kind of recent marketing strategies that they've laid out and they've driven, I think have been really impressive. So yeah, bullish for sure.
0: Yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot of people playing around and having fun on the app, but I also find a lot of educational topics. I find a a lot of pretty prominent business owners and, and business moguls on the platform now. So I think that's only going to develop more we'll probably see some pretty pretty big names on the app in the next couple of years. Last one, let's talk about business school from an MBA perspective. So I'm, I'm probably going to exclude, let's say anything outside of maybe, let's say, top 30 programs. Obviously, we've got probably hundreds of MBA programs in this country, if not more. I do see some of those probably going away in the future. I think education as a whole is changing. What do you think about elite MBA programs, especially those where people take uh, two years off to attend these programs? They have the opportunity cost of losing the revenue during that time, uh, as well as the exorbitant cost that sometimes is over $200,000 to attend one of these universities. You yourself, Yeah, blended in a role that a lot of people do go to school for. So I want to hear your perspective, bullish or bearish.
1: Yeah, I am somewhere in between, Dustin, because I I see the value. I think that there's a lot of nuances to, to this because, and especially in the industry that you're in, There's a lot of value in having some of that additional training around finance principles, finance fundamentals, no pun intended, different kind of tools, resources, frameworks that I think are really, really important when you are digging into the nitty gritty of building a business, kind of driving consultative services for a business. I also think that there's a tremendous amount of value for people going back to school and getting an MBA in preparation for starting their own business. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really 50, 50 on Topic. You know, I think for me, I felt that an MBA was going to be a part of my roadmap in like the first four to six years of my career. I'm not, by the way, writing that off. There's a good chance that I, I may go back to school at some point. But, you know, for me, my point of view on an MBA going down the road that I was going was okay, I feel like this is something that I need to. Make more money. I feel like this is something that I need to perhaps take on more responsibility within my organization or company. Both of those things have come to fruition without my MBA. And some could argue it's you know a mixture of kind of right place, right time. But hopefully there's a component of hard work uh, in there that I can credit myself to as well. And over the years, I have managed teams and managed people that have had their MBAs, who have you know stepped into fairly kind of junior level roles in their career as well, and are kind of growing their career trajectory in my opinion in a very similar way to people that I'm seeing growing their career without the MBA so I think it depends what I really hope that we move away from uh, at some point and certainly in in Silicon Valley what we're already doing this is just this kind of expectation that you you know have to get the MBA to get a certain role because it's just it's just flat out not true i'm living proof of that many others are living proof of that i mean how many c-suite executives in the world don't have mbas honestly probably a majority of them believe it or not and while i understand that there is this kind of new generation and new thought process around education i think there are certain industries and sectors that really kind of value the experience right place right time um, over again kind of taking the time to go to an mba so uh, i'll sit I'll sit on the fence on that one because I do think there's tremendous value for some, but for others, I, I just I don't see the value.
0: Yeah, I think it's a powerful tool if you want to do a significant career pivot. Maybe you're not where you want to be in your career. I think if you've reached a point where you are pretty satisfied with some of the career decisions that you've made, it may just be a complementary tool. And maybe an executive MBA, for example, would be the right tool for you. And you don't need to forego the two years of work experience. There's a lot of other opportunities out there. And I, I think that education as a whole in this country is changing significantly. We will see significant changes in the next couple of decades. So a lot more to come on that. All right. So we're going to move on from that. But Connor, one of my favorite questions to ask. Advice that you would have given yourself five years ago, and then advice that you give yourself five years from today.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good one. So uh, advice I would have given myself five years ago, it's don't be afraid to speak up. I, I briefly alluded to this earlier. I was, for a little while, and, and in my personal life, I'm a fairly outspoken person. And so there's it's interesting kind of how you can have a profile in your professional uh, life and a profile in your personal life. For a number of years, I, I was the guy who, didn't want to be the one asking the stupid questions or what I felt were stupid questions. And I would oftentimes find myself in situations where by not asking what I felt were kind of redundant or you know overly tactical questions, I then had to kind of circle back and find a creative way to get those answers when I could have just gotten them in, in the kind of initial situation that I was in. So I would say, speak up. There is a balance there, right? But, but, but speak up because asking all the questions, taking the risks, right? As we talked about earlier, it can Can reap uh, amazing benefits, I think nicely segues into also just take risks. And while I've certainly taken risks in in my career, there are probably more I could have taken. And so I think I I really recommend, especially for those earlier in their career, to really kind of capitalize on that earlier in your career card while you can take all the risks that you can. I think as far as advice, I'd give myself five years from now, continue to refine and lean into those transferable skills that I talked about earlier. I think there's a lot of value in things like program management and communications and specifically on the communications front, your ability to, you know, efficiently and effectively convey an idea no matter who the audience is. I think that transferable skills, or I guess someone called soft skills are some of the most valuable things that you can carry with you throughout the course of one's career. And so I am always doing everything I can to optimize for improving those things as well.
0: Yeah. I think that we can all learn more technical skills, but soft skills are sometimes more difficult for us to maintain, especially as we get older, <laughs> maybe get a little more stubborn. So I carry those with you and continue to refine those. Closing remarks, Connor, for students listening or maybe professionals listening that may want to make a career pivot, maybe just want to learn more about corporate finance and career pathing in finance. Uh, what What's the last bit of advice that you would leave with them with?
1: think really just more summarizing some of the key themes that we've hit on today. So I'll start by kind of noting, and as I mentioned in the beginning of the segment, I'm a huge fan of your programming, Dustin, and, and kind of what you're driving here. And fortunately, it's oftentimes on the individual to take the necessary steps to get the education they need around financial literacy. Now, fortunately, there are a plethora of resources out there to get that education, right? Whether that be Podcasts like these, sitting down and talking with a financial advisor, taking some classes—there are a lot of opportunities to get yourself caught up on this stuff. So start your financial journey now. The sooner, the better. Even a little bit now can potentially mean a lot later. And I know you've hit on this many, many times uh, in some of the previous episodes that you have. And, you know, secondly, as we discussed a few times today, uh, and as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, take risks in your career. It is easy to get comfortable and cruise. And it's oftentimes when you start to feel comfortable that it's time to move on to something else. When you're uncomfortable is usually when you're learning the most. Nobody is looking out for your career more than you are. So use that kind of early career card to your benefit Take some risks and and really step outside your comfort zone because I can tell you right now, for me, all the times that I did step outside my comfort zone, there were a lot of benefits that came from it. I think third, please understand that holding yourself to certain standards or, or very particular paths connected to career linearity can be challenging and sometimes damaging to your career. Within the theme of taking risks, don't turn down an interesting opportunity because it wasn't part of the original plan. These opportunities can oftentimes be the most rewarding and beneficial, as I just said. So be very mindful of guardrails, take career linearity with a grain of salt, and and ensure that you are kind of growing your career by extending yourself outside the the box that I think a lot of us put ourselves in. And, And fourth, for all of you prospective finance professionals out there, finance is a very diverse world with a lot of different paths that you can take. So don't let what is sometimes the dryness of the curriculum that you're working through in your classroom kind of deter you from exploring what a career in finance can do for you. Hopefully as the years progress, university level curriculum will start to reflect that more and more.
0: Connor, I can't thank you enough. I really do appreciate you coming on. Always fun to have a familiar face on the show. Keep in touch. Maybe we'll we'll have you on again in the future. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit more about uh, the world of chief of staff roles. Uh, if anyone liked to learn more about Connor's experience, I will leave all of his information in the description. I would love for all of you to check out his LinkedIn. He's very active on LinkedIn and does a great job using these stories features and, and making sure to keep everyone updated. Also very involved in the chief of staff network in the United States. So see a lot of really good content coming out of there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Your podcast is a part of my weekly routine now. So yeah, I look forward to future episodes. Again, really, really psyched for you. And and thanks
0: for having me. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. This was another great interview on the Business of Business, the interview series on finance fundamentals. And I'm really glad that you joined me for this. Connor, thank you for coming on the show. Always nice to have a familiar face. And I really do appreciate your perspective on corporate finance, how it's changed and how it continues to change. Join me next week for another great interview. Together, we'll own that road to financial freedom. And I'm really glad you're joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me, produced and edited by Daniel Rue. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we really hope you enjoy them.